addicted to the thrill. Uh-huh. It's a dangerous love Right. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Hot Take Time Machine. Today is Friday, February 12th, and you know we're, we're about a week removed from the main event that everybody has been talking about, but you know it's still <laughs> fresh in everyone's memory. Super Bowl 55, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, or should I say the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right. beating the Kansas City Chiefs 31-9, to an absolute domination. It, I mean, it was crazy game. All I have to say, Theo, is <sighs> I told you so. Yeah, it was definitely a game that defied at least my expectations and most of America. I mean, you were back in the Bucks, but I'm not sure, uh, you know, you and the other Bucks betters were, this was what was expected. This a beatdown of this proportion, you know, Pat Mahomes Mm-mm. not throwing for a touchdown. First time ever happened in the NFL. Biggest margin of defeat since college. Uh, Brady just turned him who was boss. He, he literally turned Mahomes into his son in this game. It was absolute domination, especially by the uh, Buccaneers defense. We're going to get into this a little bit. Uh, but Ethan, I think for me at least, uh, in terms of what you know, tipped the balances in this game, I don't even think it was Mahomes' fault as much. You know, it was this porous, no, no. banged up offensive line and an mm-hmm. extremely uh, you know undisciplined defense on the side of Kansas City. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, to it, for anybody placing blame on Mahomes, that's just stupid. Quite honestly, like he. Mm-hmm played about as well as he could have considering, like you said, the pressure he was facing on basically every single drop back of the game. I, you know, he's running for his life and he's still getting a lot of these throws off and placing them. If not right on the money, like they're at least catchable. (laughs) And there were like two or three passes that like definitely should have been caught. The others that people are saying like, Oh, Mahomes receivers were dropping them. Like, yeah, it's excusable. It's either a good defensive play or it's just, you know, a tough, like, bang-bang play where you don't necessarily expect them yeah. to catch. But there were a couple. Like, that Kelsey one sticks out to me the most when the game was still closed in the first half. I mean, you got a third and long. You got to mm-hmm. catch that ball. Like, that's a yeah. game-changing catch if he does that. But, yeah, you know, Mahomes – he did about as well as he could have, but it was just the pressure from the Bucks defense that really just, you know, took him completely out of the equation. And also, yeah. you know, credit to Todd Bulls. Todd Bulls, that game plan, the two deep that we were talking about last week in the preview. I mean, they made it so that Tyree Kill, even though he finished the game with like 70 yards and seven catches, that is not indicative of how he played at all. He was a yeah, non-factor up until basically the last two drives, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a guy who in the previous game had 269 yards and three <laughs> touchdowns. Like, in the first half. And now he just literally doesn't have anything to do with the game. It was pretty wild. But the one thing that really stuck out to me, which I think was a real game-changing uh, moment, was when the Bucks decided on offense, okay, let's commit a little bit more to the run too. Right. It was something that we talked about for a key uh for the Bucks to win last week, you know, getting the running backs involved, whether it's in the passing game or just handing it off. And they were able to do that. I mean, 
both uh, Ronald Jones and playoff Lenny, they combined for 150 rushing yards total. They, I think it was uh, Fournette that scored a touchdown. Also, they were able to get them involved really quickly. And that's what, you know, was able to keep that clock ticking, keep them moving the ball. And, and behind that offensive line, they were picking up like six, seven yards a carry. It was just really an insane performance by them. Yeah, I like that you mentioned Byron Leftwich's kind of run scheming in this game and how, mm-hmm. in my opinion, that sealed sealed the win for Kansas City, or excuse me, for Tampa Bay, because uh, if you just kind of look at the box score, I mean, playoff Lenny and Rojo logged at least 12 carries apiece, each of them. Playoff Lenny had 16 carries. I mean, if you think about that, yep. it's then in total for the Buccaneers, 28 rushes on offense and 29 pass attempts which is pretty mm-hmm. pretty insane if you consider that in discount. And a lot of those pass attempts too. I mean, Brady had 29, but like five of them were just throwaways in the fourth quarter when the game yeah. was already over. Yeah. Like they didn't even throw the ball that much in reality, you know? Yeah, it's I mean, it's just such, such a testament to the coordination I think of all these studs on the field and on the sidelines with oh. the Chiefs just how left which was just able to get a mind melt going with between Brady and uh especially that Bucks offensive line and then those running backs it just seemed like there were so fewer plays, even in like this Bucks game compared to like when the Bucks were playing against Washington, honestly, because I think there were moments in that Washington game where, you know, the Bucks look pretty fallible. That's really where I rooted my skepticism of them going into this game. But, you know, there were just so few negative yardage plays kind of, you know, like we had uh, previewed in our last episode, something that was going to be so important for Brady was going to these reliable check down options with uh, playoff Lenny, Leonard Fournette, uh, you know, catching mm-hmm. passes out of the backfield. Rob Gronkowski being that rock solid option for him, you know, those two props that I took in the wager wire, Lenny went over his receiving yards total. So he was a reliable pass catching option. And then Gronk had two tutties scored touchdown too. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that was just the key. You know, Brady, they just it's the perfect system for Brady to play his style of offense, which is just efficient, smart throws, not taking too much too much of a risk, but also, you know, just moving the ball. It's what he's done best his entire career and this was just a perfect, you know, example of that. One other thing though that I wanted to bring up before we move on from talking about the Super Bowl for a little bit and go more into just, you know, Brady's legacy in general is uh Kansas City's defense you know, I don't know what was going on. I mean, that was crazy. Sure, some of those calls, I guess, were a little questionable. You know, I, I mean, I was of the of the mindset where, look, like, even if the ball wasn't necessarily catchable per se, like, it's still blatantly a penalty. Like, you can't just wrap a guy up or trip him or yeah. something. So, yeah. like, the penalties were a killer. Obviously, you know, they had 11 penalties for 120 yards total in the game. The Chiefs did. So a lot of those coming on the defensive side. And also just you could really tell once the game, it was like late in the second quarter, early third quarter, the game started to unravel a little bit when you've got Tyron Matthew and other D-backs like yelling at each other on the field and on the sidelines. And then Matthew's getting into it with Brady. I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit more during, I'm sure everybody can guess which segment that's going to come <laughs> up in, but uh, you know, it was just really a poor showing I think for the for the Chiefs defense in a game where they kind of got exposed because everybody was still on the fence going into it oh are they are they good I mean they looked great against Buffalo but they also look bad sometimes and I think now it's safe to say that if they want to get back to the point where they can win another Super Bowl obviously you have Mahomes you have the weapons on offense but if you can't improve that defense and become a little bit more consistent 
it's i mean it's going to be a tall order you know it's just like clearly it's just that same thing that that age old adage defense wins championships (laughs) and it rang true this year like it does every single year well that's i mean that's of course to say defense wins you championships but defense also fundamentally loses you championships like in the case of the of the chiefs in this game and if you just kind of look at the uh advanced defensive stats in in this particular game i mean Tom Brady was picking apart this KC defense like a Costco rotisserie chicken 3 p.m. on a weekday afternoon. Literally (laughs) five different uh, Chiefs defenders had 100% completion completion rate when they were targeted. So basically they did not disrupt a single pass that was thrown their way. Five different defenders Mm -hmm. for KC, whereas not a single defender on the other end for Tampa Bay's defense – had that failed ability to just do their basic job, which is to limit completions when they're in coverage. And Tom Brady was just reading this defense like a book. It almost seemed too easy for him at times. You know, it didn't even seem like he was, you know, had that many hurried throws or there were, you know, make or break situations. It just didn't really seem close from, you know, the first couple drives. I think we knew in this game that Casey's defense was going to be on their heels and in for an uphill battle, but and when you're talking about just the, the defense winning and losing championships, we're going to get into this a little more with, uh, you know, a later segment. But uh, you really have to tip your cap, give your flowers to um, what Todd Bowles and this Tampa Bay defense has been able to achieve, not just in this particular game, neutralizing, you know, one of the greatest quarterbacks already, I think one of the most talented quarterbacks who has ever lived, but, you know, maintaining consistency and continuity within, you know, the energy of that team in the front seven and in the, in the, you know, secondary, I mean, mm-hmm. these guys, I'm, I, as someone who, you know, wasn't really rooting for Brady to win a championship with a team that wasn't the Patriots. I still felt really good to see guys like Levante, David, uh, even though he's an asshole, Nadama Kingsu, Shaq Barrett, you know, I love him. Vita Vea, these yeah. guys uh, have paid their dues in the NFL and they've had pro bowl seasons. They've stayed mm-hmm. healthy. They've done everything they can for this Buccaneers franchise where, you know, who knows what kind of playoff exposure and performance these guys would have been able to have if they didn't have Jameis Winston on the other side (laughs) leading that team. So you got to really give credit to guys like Devin White, Shaq Barrett, you know, all those front seven boys. And I think they've really affirmed themselves in that kind of, you know, historically elite category among kind of like Super Bowl linebackers, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, I think just Bulls really was able to capitalize a lot on their mixture, like you were alluding to. Their their mixture of of veterans that have been successful in the league, been around for a while, not necessarily had, you know, outside of JPP, haven't really had a ton of playoff success. And then these young guys who they're really starting to emerge, whether it's in the secondary, whether it's Devin White. I mean, Levante David's been around now at this point for a little bit longer. But, yeah, it's just that's that's the key, you know. I mean, bottom line, defense, 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 and it was there for the Buccaneers. I guess just before we move on to talking about some hockey a little bit, uh, you know, I mean, obviously what's on everybody's mind now is yeah. Brady's legacy. Everyone's talking about, is he the goat of goats, this and that. I mean, it's pretty clear to say that he's at least going to be very, very well off in terms of being the greatest of right. all time. <laughs> I mean, people make arguments. I'm not one of those people. I think he's the greatest of all time, but let's hear Theo from you. I mean, what do you think that this Super Bowl victory specifically means for his legacy? Well, first of all, before I kind of get into like my take, something I just hate about like this discourse and like how people organize and construct their their arguments for one side or the other is like, here are like all the Super Bowls where like Brady was bailed out, this and that. And like one, that is complete bullshit. Like 
the only the only reason like that people like those critics are mentioning those moments is because Brady got them in an opportunity to win that game in that make or break moment and it went the Patriots way in the past regardless you know it's hard for me to really dispute the claim that he is the greatest NFL player to live I think he you know the, just the resume speaks for itself I'm not sure we're gonna say he's necessarily like the best or most technically or, or mo- most talented quarterback mm-hmm. I think because that's never kind of been Brady's billing you know his thing is that he is a winner if you're going to start to put him alongside, you know, make these comparisons, which I think people have to now that he's, you know, achieved something really incredible, you know, going to a team in his first year, age 43, winning a Super Bowl as a wild card. He never won the Super Bowl as a wild card. Uh, you have to start mentioning the same breath as the Michael Jordans, Serena Williams, uh, Michael Phelps. I mean, it's then at that point really tough to give you know give a definitive comparison because then that's you know that's I think right. a little bit too sports yeah exactly it's a little bit too uh, macroscopic of an argument just way way too tough to you know judge all those on the same plane but I think at this moment in time indisputably best quarterback of all time uh, or greatest quarterback of all time and greatest football player of all time but I wouldn't necessarily say he's the the best to play the game if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you 100%. Like, look, just looking at raw talent and, like, athleticism, are there guys that are better at that sort of stuff than Brady? Yeah, and there will always be guys that are even who are shitty, but, like, still, just the consistency, the durability, the will to win that Brady possesses and displays year in and year out is there's no one quite like it. And then for him to even – I mean, basically, the the Patriots are like, we don't want you. And he was like, fine, I'll go win somewhere else and does it. Like, that doesn't happen. He's just – simply put, he's the greatest of all time, at least in football. Like you were saying, like, it's tough to compare sports because, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of talk as in, you know, like – the only other true, like, undisputed greatest of all time in, like, big four American sports is – Wayne Gretzky in hockey and like oh is Brady like now there but like they're just you can't compare them because again Gretzky yeah. was the guy who he was all about the numbers you know it wasn't like he was winning just oh, all these yeah. championships even though it's a team sport so it's it's tough to compare but regardless Brady I mean at this point I think that if quite frankly if you're trying to argue that he's not the greatest you're at least seven. quarterback if not player seven. of all time like you're an asshole I mean <laughs> and you're just wrong like it's so funny. I was watching the Australian Open the other day, and they're talking about Tom Brady, like how great, how he's the greatest of all time. It's like, that. this is like tennis. I'm watching like <laughs> AM. Are you kidding me? I mean, it just goes to show how the fact that everybody knows how great he is and knows who he is, it's just, I mean, it's, it's all part of it. You know, he is the undisputed greatest quarterback of all yeah. time. I think now more than ever, you can't make that argument. And, He's just, I mean, it's, I can't imagine what it's like to be him and just like still be playing and know yeah. like, oh, I'm going to be in the Hall of Fame. Like I have the most Super Bowls, more Super Bowls than any single franchise does. So ridiculous. Uh, you know, like I'm going to end up leading the NFL like career in like a bunch of statistics, blah, blah, blah. Like it must just be a crazy feeling to know that you're the greatest of all time. But clearly he does after that yeah. little stint being hammered on the boat. But that yeah, avocado he's, he's tequila. the greatest of all time. Going to move on here, uh, Ethan. Let's start kicking off some NHL. Uh, obviously, you know, we had our hockey talk with Ethan Fink, and that was a good discussion to kind of set the baseline here for this 2021 NHL season. But, you know, Ethan, now we're just about a month in here and starting to see some some uh, teams kind of rise to the top and 
start to really uh, affirm themselves as contenders in the division and in the larger Stanley Cup picture. So Mm -hmm. we're just going to take you guys through some of these divisions and some of the prominent storylines, some team to watch, maybe some uh, matchups we want to point to as um, significant in the next couple of weeks because every regular season matchup means even more uh, in this 2021 season. So, Ethan, why don't you kick us off with uh, the North Division? Yeah, sure. Well, so, of course, at, for everybody that doesn't know, obviously, the <clears throat> the divisions in the NHL were sw- uh, swip- switched up a little bit. I mean, not too crazy, but it's just really for the COVID guidelines and the fact that all the Canadian teams aren't allowed in the U.S. until yeah, the playoffs. Yeah, like- uh, so the North Division now is, is all those Canadian teams, all seven of them. Uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of what everybody expected it to be. At least I think it's just a lot of offense, not a ton of, you know, great goal tending outside of like maybe Montreal and like, but I I mean, here's the thing, Toronto right now, they look like the best team in hockey. I think, I mean, when you have, you have Austin Matthews, who's, I mean, he's, he's our age. He's 23. He's leading the league with 11 goals yeah, five of those are game winners. And Mitch Marner, he has 21 points in 13 games, which is like third or fourth in the league. Like, I mean, he's 23-2. That is just an electric combo right there. And then also, I mean, Frederick Anderson, he hasn't really even been that great, honestly. It just kind of goes, you know, along with that same theme I, I led off with about how the goaltending in the North isn't that good. But but with Toronto, like if you are going to have that solid of a four check to the point where you have multiple guys in the top five statistical categories for like any sort of offense, I mean, that's a recipe for success, especially when you're playing against yeah. teams like, you know, I mean, Ottawa has been horrible this year. I mean, they're terrible. Like you really can't <laughs> overstate how bad they are. But then also like Vancouver has kind of been underwhelming. Calgary's been underwhelming. Winnipeg's been underwhelming. Like these are all such gettable teams and Toronto's really capitalizing on them and making it so that you can sort of get away with Anderson, you know, not playing great, but playing just well enough to continue winning games. And and as long as they stay healthy, I mean, they're going to continue to do so, you know. They just, I really don't see anybody sort of rising to the occasion of contending with them at this point to win that division because Montreal, like they were really good to start. They've kind of come back to the pack yeah. a little bit. You know, they've lost their last two, uh, including uh, one of those was to Ottawa, which like that's a rough loss. I mean, you can't lose to the Senators. They literally have two wins this year. <laughs> They're, um, <laughs> they're so bad. So, you know, I, I, I think that was to be expected that, that the Habs were going to sort of come back to the pack a little bit, but the, the tail of the tape here with this division is all Toronto right now. I mean, they're just electric to watch night in and night out. And these guys are so young. It's like, they're only going to, yeah, they're not going to be just like this. They're going to get better. You know, every yeah. single year that they go, I'm really excited to see how Matthews and Marner start to sort of develop a little bit, you know? Well, like I, I, you know, I'm pretty surprised as well, because if you kind of look at the Maple Leafs, you know, they have such incredible, you know, young talent between Matthews and Marner and Nylander, but then they've also got incredibly impactful veterans to them who aren't even playing right now. Cause Spet, uh, excuse me, Spets has been playing and he's been an incredible influence on that team. But then you got Joe Thornton and uh, Wayne Simmons two of whom have had their own moments of, you know, incredible uh, performance in the NHL kind of 
you know, oh, that yeah. a, a few years in the past, especially Joe Thornton. I mean, that guy's an Iron Man, and those guys are currently yeah, they're injured. both at least borderline Hall of Famers. Yeah. Joe Thornton's definitely one. You know, it's that's good to have. Yeah, yeah. So these vets, and they're not even on the ice for them right now. So they're leading the NHL in points without two extremely impactful veteran presences on the ice. I feel like the Maple Leafs, you know, only have a uh, up upward to go. So, uh, but you know, they're gonna have to contend with these other very talented teams in this North Division. Two of the Maple Leafs' three losses have come actually at the hands of the Edmonton Oilers, Ethan. And I know you are a big fan of their uh, dynamic duo on their top line. Yeah, I mean, look, McDavid's so good. Like, he's actually – it's insane. Yeah. So, I, he, like, look, the the Oilers are not great. I'm not going to, like, go around and say that that team is, like, a crazy, you know, scary team. But the one thing that makes them a tough team to play is Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Like, like they're just both generational players to the point where, like, I mean, McDavid, obviously, but Dreisaitl, too. I mean, by the time these guys' careers are over, like, they're going to be probably considered, like, some of the best players ever. They're, they're so yeah. good. McDavid, he, he has 28 points, which is leading the league. Dreisaitl is second in the league with 26. It's like you have both those guys on the same team. How could you not be better? But it's kind of been the same story with them, you know, since they got McDavid. They just don't have consistent enough goaltending, and that's been the issue. Uh, you know, Koskinen has been – okay like he looks okay sometimes and other times he really doesn't he's got a losing record this year he's six and seven with an under 90 save percentage yeah, what the fuck? which is just you know they got to find some sort of better goaltending because you have these two guys they literally give you a chance in every game even though like there it's only two players like you can't say that about really anyone else and also one other thing i wanted to bring up that i thought was like absurd is the fact that uh I think it was a week ago today when they played the first Battle of Alberta this year against Calgary, um, and McDavid played the final five minutes and 50 seconds of the third period, and then Dreisaitl was like 5.35, which both of those are the longest shifts since they started recording the stat in like the 70s or 80s or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like – how do you have the energy to stay on the ice for six minutes? Granted, I think they did take a timeout at one point, but still, like most other guys would be like falling over at that point. And yeah, they're just crazy, crazy fun to watch. I think that's what's so exciting for people about this North division is that even though a lot of the teams kind of suck, except for like, you know, Toronto and, and kind of Edmonton, they still all the teams other than Ottawa have really, really, exciting young players yeah you know that are gonna be making plays night in and night out like even you look at a team like vancouver you know they have a lot of solid young guys they haven't been able to put it together obviously this year yet but this is the division i think with the most upside i would say in the nhl going forward this season and beyond and because of that it's kind of difficult to say who the other three teams uh, are going to be coming out of the North. But as of right now, like just going back to what I let off with Toronto, I mean, they're, they're in control and barring crazy injuries or an absolute like collapse. I mean, I think that they're going to win this division outright pretty handily. Yeah. Obviously Toronto's in the driver's seat, just kind of, you know, before we kind of talk about uh, wrap it up with Montreal, you know, just for this division, <laughs> quick note on the Oilers, you know, we're talking like, just how incredible like this, you know, this front line is for them with uh, Dre Seidel and uh, McDavid. The games that they've lost, just to give give everyone a gauge how, you know, significant 
and dramatic of a difference there is between this offense and their goaltending defense. The games that they lose are like eight, five, uh, six, four, like five, four. So they're scoring a shit ton, but they just keep letting goals in. Um, Anyways, uh, better team, you know, Montreal Canadiens, they started uh, the season, you know, at the top of this division. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seemed like they were in control and hopefully we're going to get some, you know, Toronto Montreal rivalry, because I know that's quite a uh, big cultural factor over there, you know, Ontario, Quebec area. Uh, but, yep. you know, one guy who I was, you know, I was listening to a, a hockey podcast the other day and this guy's name popped up and, you know, cause uh, I've, I've got some fondness for him in my heart. Cause you know, he made his debut with the LA Kings. Yeah, it's your boy. Yeah. Tyler Toffoli. He, I think he won, won at least one cup with us. Uh, he's been mm-hmm. an incredible addition for this Montreal Canadiens team. He's been scoring like crazy and weirdly enough, you know, he's had nine goals so far. I think he has a, uh, more assists than he does have goals right now. But eight of those nine goals have come against his former team, the Vancouver Canucks. Yep. Uh, you know, he's second in the NHL in goals alongside his teammate Anderson. So just kind of funny how Toffoli's just been burning his former teammates and, uh, you know, those Vancouver Canucks. Vancouver team that he was fundamentally, you know, important to the success of, especially, you know, giving the Golden Knights a run for their money in the uh, semifinals of the Western Conference playoffs in 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. I actually saw something uh, like along that same line about Toffoli where uh, the Canucks are the team that he's scored the most goals against of any team in the NHL in his yeah. career, which is pretty interesting. I just, I mean, it doesn't like have a ton of bearing on anything, but you know, these well, teams play for them. Right. That's a, but like because these teams also are facing each other so much, you know, and it's it's the the back to backs or the home and homes or whatever like that. I mean, stuff like that is just that kind of lights a fire for a guy like Toffoli where he's like, OK, like I kind of have had Vancouver's number for my entire career. Like now I get to play them like twice a week. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's that's the sort of thing where you can really rally around that and. And I mean, clearly it's been working for, for Montreal so far, but enough of the North. Let's keep it rolling right into a division that's a little bit closer to home for me, uh, pun intended or no pun intended, however you want to say it. It's just uh, the East Division. <laughs> Theo, what do we got here? So this division to me, I mean, it's a little chalky right now, I guess you could say, just because the Bruins are at the top right now and they've been a dominant team in the East past couple of years. Obviously they went to game seven of the Stanley Cup Finals. 2019, so they've preserved a lot mm-hmm. of their core, you know, pasta, still doing pasta things. Then, of course, you got the Flyers and the Capitals shoring it up. But, um, of course, Pittsburgh Penguins, you know, they're always an enigma just because, you know, they draw so much attention because they've got the great, the the second great one in Sidney Crosby and uh, Evgeny Malkin, yep. you know, future Hall of Fame guys. Uh, and weirdly enough, you know, I we, we don't ha- necessarily have this written down, but the Pens are making I'm, – I'm honestly, Ethan, just kind of curious what you think as someone who's a little – more familiar with kind of the ins and outs of, uh, you know, the management and and just the portrayal of a franchise because the Penguins got a new head coach and a new GM. Um, so yeah. what do you think that's going to pretend to this particular team in the East against, you know, I, we don't have to get into deep detail on the Bruins and Flyers, you know, this, it's, uh, you know, not like it's a crazy difference from last year, but what do you think the Pens need to do to be able to kind of hang with these guys in the East and maybe uh, sneak into this playoff spot? Yeah. So just on the first point about, you know, the turnover they've had in the front office I, I and uh, coaching wise, I mean, I think the main thing there is you're really starting to get not to the end of the point, but like near that, near that time where it's like, okay, like how much longer are we going to keep Crosby and Malkin around? Because, yeah. you know, I mean, like 
they're they both cost a lot of money not a, as much as you know some other players but they still cost a lot of money and they're aging and like the sad fact of the matter is they're not getting better every year they're just going to stay the same or get slightly worse every year i mean we've already seen gino start to decline a little bit and while while crosby's still playing well like i mean he had 100 points two seasons ago but that was two seasons ago you know now he's what 33 and only getting older like I think maybe there was some sort of talk with Rutherford about like trying to trade one of those guys but then it's like okay you're trading like one of the best players of all time like how could you justify doing that so yeah that you know that's going to be something they're going to have to sort of grapple with I think for the entire rest of the season and even beyond but as for right now you know the key with uh, with Pittsburgh, I think at least, is just relying on them while you still have them because you have other pieces around that are solid. You know, Brian Rust has the most assists on the team this year. He is seven. He's he's played pretty well, I've thought so far. I mean, at least in games that I've watched when the Penguins have played the Rangers, he's absolutely dominated us. And so you have other reliable players on this team who, you know, like look. Are they great? Are they going to ever be the level of the Bruins or the Flyers this year? Probably not. No, no. You have the potential to still contend and probably sneak into the playoffs as like the third or fourth seed out of the division. But at the end of the day, it's all kind of going to come down to goaltending. You know, I mean, if you look like Casey DeSmith has been the winningest goalie for them this year, I believe. Uh-huh. And he only has like four wins. I mean, he's been he's been okay, but he hasn't played a ton yet. Like he's playing like every other game as of right now, I think he's going to end up just being the starter, but he's still not the level of a flurry who's playing still pretty well right now. Or, I mean, Matt Murray's kind of been bad for the senators, but still like, like to that point, like you're missing these guys who were your guys, your Stanley cup winning goalies, you know, and and get rid of them and that you really miss it. So I think they sort of have to learn the lesson that they did with those goaltenders and and not do the same thing with with Sid and Gino because if you do that then you're I think you're just going to end up kicking yourself afterwards and and I think moving them especially this year would be foolish since I mean realistically the Penguins still I think have a very good chance to make the make the playoffs I mean I would be pretty surprised if they didn't honestly but I don't know it's just it comes down to the goaltending with them they got to either try to find somebody who's going to be relatively cheap to trade for, or just hope that the Smith really starts to play more consistently well, because you have two of the greatest players of the 21st century. Yeah. Like, you can't get rid of them, you know, as, as someone who was a casual in terms of uh, following the NHL for so long, you know, only past couple of years, I've started to follow it um, much more closely that, you know, for the Penguins, it's just, it's just these guys. It's the, it's the Crosby, the Malkin, the Latang. Um, the, obviously Flurry's been gone for a while and Murray's gone now, but, um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just weird, you know, a franchise that was the paragon of excellence in the NHL. Now, you know, it's kind of in this gray area where they yeah. um, basically have to t- decide if they're going to tank and, and rebuild and, you know, maybe trade some of these names or try and contend with Philadelphia and Boston. But, uh, Ethan, what else in this East division do you think is worth taking note of at least right now among other teams? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we already talked about just the Bruins and Flyers are clearly the two top teams in this division. I don't think anyone's that close, but there is sort of a log jam at the bottom of teams that they're not scoring that well, but they're playing well because, 
like Jack Hughes, for example. I mean, he's a guy that that people were starting to talk about with the Devils. Like, okay, I mean, is he going to be a bust? Because last year, you know, he really was not that good, at least in terms of putting the puck in the in the net and in passing and all that. But he's put on weight. You know, he's looked great this season. The Sabers are another one. You have a really really young core. I mean, Eichel's the main guy there. But Rasmus Dahlin, he the defenseman, he's played much better this year. I've thought. Uh, Rangers, you know, same deal. Lafreniere, the first pick this year, he's got one goal, no assists. It's like only 11 games in or whatever, but still it's, it's, these are more of the developmental teams where it's like, okay, they're not going to necessarily be uh, that great this year. Maybe one of them could sneak into the playoffs as the four seed, but you know, in two, three years, they're probably all going to be very solid teams in, in this division, you know, because they all have pretty young goaltenders too. And, and I think that that's something that's going to be on a team like the Penguins or the Capitals or even the Islanders radar, because, you know, those are the like second tier teams who are, you know, still, I would say favorites over the bottom three to make the playoffs, but you never know. So it's kind of like that window starts to close. And again, back to what we were saying about the Pens, it's like how cl- quickly is that window going to close? You yeah. know, how much longer are you guys going to still be able to dominate all these kind of shitty teams in the East when in reality, they're going to be better than you in probably two, three years. Yeah, right. So I think that's, that's all to kind of say that the pens are going to be tested big time by these teams below them and above them in the division. So a lot still uh, yet to happen in the East, but Ethan, uh, let's start to round up this NHL uh, chat a little bit with a quick, Whip to the central division. You have written down that this division fucking sucks. And, you know, it's <laughs> it's pretty pretty hard to dispute that. It's a very top-heavy division at the moment uh, with the Florida teams really, you know, setting the pace and kind of, um, you know, keeping order the rest of the teams in line. Of course, um, you know, you're talking about a window closing for one team with the Penguins, but we still got an open window very much. So for the Tampa Bay Lightning here, you know, they're playing mm-hmm. super well right now. Um, of course, you know, they're not necessarily dominating the NHL like we've possibly seen the past couple of years in terms of racking up, you know, these enormous wins, but they have a great record. They're nine, two and one uh, Vasilevsky's, you know, doing Vasilevsky things. He's uh, leading the NHL and wins. Uh, he has great goal against numbers, great save numbers. And the lightning look, they lost Nikita Kucherov. Okay. And that was, you know, probably one of the most significant injuries going into the season, mm-hmm. but lo and behold, who else steps up in his stead but Steven Stamkos, the classic, the quintessential Tampa Bay Lightning, a guy who didn't even get to contribute to the Stanley Cup yeah. uh, campaign, the Stanley Cup run until whatever came three of the finals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the key to the Lightning's success is first and foremost, obviously, the stuff with Vasilevsky. And he's like, I think he's just the best goal in the league far and away and has been for the last couple of years. He's so good. And then also, you know, just that next man up mentality that you were sort of talking about. You know, they're so deep with guys that are legit contributors, whether it's in defensive pairings or just in their in their forward lines. I mean, they like losing Kucherov sucks. Obviously he's one of the best players in the league. You know, he just makes everybody around him so much better. But then, like you said, you know, Stamkos comes back and he's up to his usual tricks. He's I think what second on the team in scoring Braden points first. I know that. Yeah. Um, you have guys like Anthony Sorelli, who's still really young. He's played great, but then you also have older guys like Palat, 
who, you know, and Pat Maroon, who are not as young, I mean, but they're still playing well, you know, and it's just, it's the perfect combination they have of, of veterans and younger guys. And everybody is sort of clearly bought into this mentality of, okay, if somebody goes down, we're just going to need someone else to step up. Cause you know, this division is up for grabs. And, and at the end of the day, I don't think anybody's going to beat them because of that. They're just so deep so talented and you you combine that with solid and consistent goaltending which i think has been really hard to come by this year in the nhl just given the nature of you know the scheduling and all that i mean the the lightning are so good i think that they're the only team that right now that could rival uh toronto for the best team in the league in my opinion of course you know it's only like you know yeah (laughs) and i'm stupid (laughs) early everybody's probably saying you know pump the brakes a little bit but i think that yeah, I think that those two teams are the best teams in the league by far just because of how dominant they've been in in every facet of the game. I mean, like you said, giving up 25 goals all season. Yeah. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? That's so nothing, especially compared to some other teams where it's like, like, look at Edmonton, for example. They've given up 52. That's more than double it, you know? So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love the Lightning here, but – um. Looking at some of the other teams in this division, you know, obviously it's like I said, it was, it's not a great division. We still have the Florida Panthers. I mean, they've been lights out, you know, uh, they, they're eight, one and two, only one loss in regulation. They've only given up 30 goals all season. Granted, they've only pl- uh, scored 37, but still, you know, they've been really good. And, and I'm curious to hear what you think some of their sort of keys to success have been so early this season in this shitty division. <laughs> well, Florida, I mean, is a weird team. Like who the fuck would consider the Florida Panthers among like the NHL's yeah. best, but Hey man, they have one loss in regulation and a month mm-hmm. into the season. That's pretty insane. They're like something like eight or not nine, one and two. So they're very yeah. similar record. Uh, record-wise, the Tampa Bay Lightning, like, who's who knows if this is going to hold up? Of course, you know, Joel Quenville is a very season-experienced coach. They got Bobrovsky. He's a season-experienced goalie. So right. who knows if this team will keep playing well? But, look, the opportunity is there because the division is ass. The other teams are not as, nearly as impressive as they were last year between, uh, you know, the Dallas Stars, uh, you know, Blackhawks. But, uh, Ethan, before we move on to our last division in the West, I'm really curious what your take is on the current state of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Yeah, here's what I would say is like, it's just par for the course. Liney's such a, a fucking crybaby, honestly. Like yeah. he thinks he's he's good. Don't get me wrong, like, he's a really good player, but he thinks he's such hot shit. And and Torts is the last guy that's ever gonna put up with that. You know, of course he hasn't really been playing that well uh, so far this season. Like he's been okay, but like not to the level that I think he would expect from himself. And and, you know, just getting benched by torts, it's kind of funny because it's like they traded away Dubois because – or not because, but at least in part because, you know, he and torts were button heads and he benched him. And then and then you get uh, Line in return, and he's doing the same exact thing. It's like if they didn't get Roslovic or Roslovic or whatever that guy's name is who is playing well right now with Columbus, I mean, this would just be like the weirdest trade ever because it's literally like, at least in terms of temperament, the same exact player, just like guys that are, yeah. you know, kind of sort of not divas per se, but like they're kind of worth a little bit less than I think they think they are because they're always causing problems. They always like want to be the center of attention. And, 
And I mean, with a guy like Tortorella, that's just not going to fly, you know? So while I think that Columbus is still good or at least kind of good, and they have some good players again, they're, they're not ever going to realistically contend with Tampa Bay or even Florida for that matter, if they continue playing this way, like I would put them more on like the, the hurricanes type of plane in this division, just because they're like, okay, they're probably going to make the playoffs still, but they just don't have the consistency. I think in a lot of facets of their game to sort of push them over the edge and really, you know, really be next level. But yeah, just in terms of the line stuff, it's, it's par for the course with torts. You know, I mean, I had torts as my head coach with the Rangers for however many years. I love that was. And he's, he's great. Yeah. He's the kind of coach where it's like, if he's, not the head coach of the team you root for everyone's like oh yeah like this is hilarious but then like if he is it's like all right like like i get what you're doing but just calm down a little bit because it's like you're drawing too much attention right now you you know who torts kind of reminds me of and like you feel free to like criticize this comparison but like he do you remember ozzy Guillen from the white Sox and marlins i don't know why but they just seem really similar yeah, no, yeah, I could kind of see that. I mean, towards he's just a loose cannon. He's the definition of a loose cannon, but like kind of in the best way possible. But yeah, it could also backfire, you know. So there's already uh, look at the end of the day, there's been a lot of stuff already coming out of this Columbus team that doesn't have to really do with hockey as much as it has to do with what's going on behind the scenes. And I think that's kind of setting a bad precedent. So I think it's just going to be like waiting to see if the Blue Jackets can sort of dig themselves out of this and continue to play well, or if they're just going to like let all this drama sort of you know, overtake every chance that they have at actually making the playoffs and contending for a cup, you know? All right, Ethan, let's wrap up NHL update here uh, with the West division. Um, My Kings, man. Oh, we started so well. You know, we looked (laughs) composed. We looked like we were going to have a respectable 500 season, but now we're back down to the bottom of the division, you know, tail is old this time here with uh, Colorado, Vegas, St. Louis, you know, they're kind of setting the tone here in the West. A lot of people, you know, had picked Colorado and Vegas as, you know, Stanley Cup, uh, you know, darlings potentially going into the season. Colorado is pretty much playing up to expectations despite uh, McKinnon's injury. Uh, mm-hmm. But Makar, Landeskog, you know, they're playing pretty well. Grubauer is doing a pretty, you know, decent job here at goal for uh, Colorado. He's second in the NHL, the VAS uh, in goals, a- average goals allowed. And I think, you know, big hallmark of this Avalanche team, which I think uh, is going to be critical to their potential Stanley Cup campaign especially, you know, as these uh, months build up into the spring, you know, that that quest starts to begin in earnest for them. They're leading mm-hmm. the NHL on the penalty kill. They've only surrendered four goals in 39 power plays of Colorado Avalanche. Ethan, what do you see out of this team? And then maybe what do you see out of their ability to kind of contend with these other heavy hitters in the division with uh, uh, Vegas and St. Louis? So with McKinnon, I mean, obviously he's he's still hurt right now. I saw something that he's uh, begun skating again, so that's a good sign for them. But he's still considered week to week, and I mean, you know, with hockey, they're pretty vague about injuries. Yeah. But I mean, even without him, like you said, they've just been able to to be so effective. And and with the penalty killing thing, I think that just comes down to a they have some young dynamic defensemen. You know, obviously Kale McCarr is like absolutely insane. But also uh, Sam Gerrard, too. He's played really well. And then you even have older guys like 
like, you know, uh, Eric Johnson and, and those sort of guys who Eric Johnson was a first overall pick, you know, like, yeah, he's not great, but he's still a solid, solid defenseman. And you couple that with the way that Grubauer's played, like you were saying, we're second in the league and goals allowed average per game. And he's seven and two, like that's a winning formula. And, and once McKinnon comes back, they're only going to get better. You know, they, they just have such a solid team. I think one of the most well-balanced teams in the entire NHL, and that's going to be the only way they're going to be able to contend with, you know, Vegas, basically. I mean, I think Vegas is the only team better than them in the West right now, just because you can kind of chalk up their, their third place, 15 points uh, being behind St. Louis and Vegas to, you know, Oh, they've played fewer games. McKinnon's hurt this and that. Yada, yeah, yada, yada. But once though, he comes really. back there, I mean, they're good. I think that they could honestly beat Vegas in a series. Of course, that's easier said than done because the golden Knights also look so good right now, but I, the, the goal differential for Colorado is 14 right now, plus 14. Like you can't make that up They're They're just a really solid team. And, and I mean, again, they're kind of the team where it's like barring some sort of injury or crazy, you know, catastrophic collapse. I would expect them to be one of the most legit Stanley cup final contenders in the Western conference, maybe in the entire, you know, just playoff picture as it is. I mean, they're really good. Yeah. I think. Back to basics, brother. We got to stay true to the spirit and the character of this podcast. Got to do our wagers for this week. Yep. Uh, of course, you guys know the drill. Each of us taking three wagers. Now that football's gone, we're going to actually kind of distribute it a little bit, incorporate oh, yeah. a, a nice little medley here of sports. And Ethan, man, before we get into the wagers, I just got to give you credit. You took the Buccaneers plus 850 prior to the Super Bowl run. I'm not now, I'm not sure if you actually put money down, but uh gotta give credit where credit's due. You know, that was a good flyer take. Yeah, I'm a genius, is all I can say. I, I won money on the Buccaneers. Uh yeah, it was it was a good day. I mean, it's been a good couple weeks. I just ever it's been a good whole season, actually. If I if I recall correctly, I think it was like week five or six where I was pretty high on the Bucks. So, you know. I'll pat myself on the back. All credit to me. I, I was one of the first to realize <laughs> that Brady's not going to lose another Super Bowl. He's going to win one. So, but yeah, with uh, with that in mind, let's roll right into this wager wire. Theo, you want to start us off with your first pick of the week? Yeah, I'll start us off. But just a quick mention, you know, even though I took the Chiefs, I hedged with a bunch of Bucks props, and they all hit uh, for the record. In last, I didn't have to hedge because I picked the Bucks. <laughs> um, so with my first wager this week. Uh, we're going to the NBA, haven't mentioned NBA yet, and we're going to get into more basketball detail with uh, future episodes. We just kind of wanted to highlight some specifics with hockey. But for mm-hmm. my first wager this week, I'm going in the NBA, taking LaMelo Ball for Rookie of the Year. This isn't a, a flaming hot take necessarily. I think a lot of people had LaMelo on their docket, but I'm going to kind of reverse course because I took Wiseman before the season. I think uh, 10 games in, that would have you know looked like a genius lay, but you know now that he's been injured and had a little – uh, inconsistency. I'm going to back LaMelo Ball here. The odds that uh, William Hill has set for him right now is plus 400, which I think is ridiculously uh, deflated odds. You know, you got to take LaMelo at this number. He's now 
the youngest to ever record a triple double in the NBA. So making it rain threes lately, he's not even that far off Ethan from a 50, 40, 90 stat line, which is like, you know, a Reggie Miller, <laughs> Steph esque, almost like MVP, yeah. you know, uh, kind of marking of that performance elite uh, level in a season. He's shooting 44% from the field, 39% from three, which is pretty impressive as a rookie. And then 87% from the free throw line. So, uh, you know, he's injecting a lot of life into this Charlotte Hornets offense that has just been desperately thirsting for, you know, a player of uh, his swagger and his electricity out there on the floor. Um, he's starting to more consistently chip in, you know, 28 plus minute nights off the bench, you know, 19 plus point nights off the bench. And look, the Hornets are not a finals contender. So that's not to say that LaMelo balls, you know, this is a transcendent rookie season that's turned the Hornets into all of a sudden this incredible NBA team, but they are hovering around 500 and holding their own surprisingly well in an East that is more loaded than years past. They're currently the seven seed, obviously, you know, shit's going to change as the season goes on, but you know, they're in the current playoff picture and they've, uh, you know, had impressive wins on their resume against the Milwaukee Bucks and Miami Heat. So uh, only expect LaMelo Ball to get better from here on. And, you know, his role start to mesh into the fabric of that Charlotte Hornets team. So give me LaMelo Ball to win rookie of the year. All right. Yeah, I like that. I mean, he's definitely going to win rookie of the year unless he gets hurt tomorrow. So it's probably some pretty good value there. Uh, my first pick, I'm going to the UFC. Obviously, UFC 258 is tomorrow, this weekend. Uh, we have Kamaru Usman, who's defending his UFC welterweight championship against Gilbert Burns. You know, of course, these guys are old sparring partners. They've been they've been, you know, training together for a long time. Uh, it'll be a really interesting, uh, sort of matchup, I think, but at the end of the day, Usman's 17 and one, he has the advantage in terms of age. He's younger. He's only 33 while Burns is 34. Usman's taller. He's six feet tall. Burns is five, eight, and he's got a longer reach at 76 inches while Burns is only 71 inches. So, you know, I think that in and of itself already gives him a little bit of a leg up uh, and, you know, sort of feeds into me taking him minus 270. Um, also, he's really durable, which I, a lot of people, you know, it flies under the radar a little bit. But, I mean, like his durability and just like endurance is really impressive. I mean, in like the last seven or so fights, uh, he's had – so many of them go to five rounds. He's had uh, against Masvidal go to five rounds. Tyron Woodley, five rounds. Dos Anjos, five rounds. Maya, five rounds. All win by decision. Like that. I mean, those are some pretty formidable opponents. You can't really make that up. And the difference with Burns is he's only gone to five rounds once in his uh, professional career. So, I, I, look, this one I think is a not a toss up, but it could go either way, and people wouldn't be too, too, too surprised. Um, just because, you know, Burns is much more comfortable fighting at 170 than at 155. But, uh, you know, Kamaru Usman, I mean, he's, he's the fourth, uh, pound, fourth ranked pound for pound fighter in the world. You know, he's, he's an absolute force to be reckoned with. And I think that he is going to defend his championship, his welterweight championship. That is, uh, this Saturday UFC 258. So give me Kamaru Usman minus 270 versus Gilbert Burns. All right given some steep odds, uh, potential Usman domination in that UFC fight. I'll be curious to see what that result is. Uh, for my second bet of this wager wire, uh, we're going to go back to the NHL. You know, we had kind of talked a little bit about uh, these two teams in the Central Division, the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Florida Panthers, you know, these two 
uh, Sunshine State, Grapefruit State teams. They're at the top of that Central Division and looking forward to this rivalry. You know, they're taking on each other tomorrow, Saturday, and I'm going to back the Lightning in this one. I'm taking the Lightning minus 140. So they are the favorites, but not, you know, in, insane steep favorites, perhaps like Usman in his, in his UFC fight. And the reason I'm taking this lay actually is because the Lightning lost. You know, they, they lost the other day to, yeah. uh, to the Florida Panthers, perhaps a surprising result. Uh, it was a really ugly L for, uh, you know, Cooper and Vasilevsky there at Tampa Bay. It was ugly 5-2 result of the hands of the Panthers. So I like the Lightning to rebound, um, you know, in their uh, back-to-back against Florida in this one. You know, I just think that Cooper, Vasilevsky, and their loaded, uh, you know, balanced roster here at Tampa Bay, I think they're, you know, they're just too experienced and too talented to let a similar result follow, you know, have a second straight ugly loss to Florida Panthers. And Vasilevsky, you know, we were kind of talking about his, how great his stats were. You know, he was on a hot streak prior to this, uh, this bad loss against the Panthers the other day, he had uh, it only allowed five goals in four games prior to this result. So uh, mm-hmm. I like uh, Vasilevsky to regain some of the confidence and swagger that he's had throughout the season and the lightning to get right against the Panthers and uh, even up this rivalry series this season. So take uh, the lightning minus 140 against the Panthers tomorrow. Yeah, I love that. They're definitely going to win. Vasilevsky's such a fucking gamer. Uh, <laughs> I'll stick with hockey, actually, for my second wager wire pick. I'm going to take the Canucks plus 110 against the Flames. Uh, they're playing Saturday night at 10 p.m., I believe, uh, February 13th. And, you know, here my sort of thought process behind this, because obviously we were talking about it earlier, the Canucks really have not played very well this year. A, you know, both teams have not played well. It hasn't just been Vancouver. I mean, the Flames have kind of underperformed too, even though Johnny Hockey's been great. The rest of the team, you know, they've been pretty mediocre at best. Um, But B, you know, Vancouver's played the most games of any team in the NHL. They've played 17. I think the next closest is like 14 or 15. So that's definitely not doing them any favors, you know, where you're playing against all those teams in the North Division that just score a million goals and play no defense. Like, it's going to tire you out. Um, and C, I think Vancouver, had their their top line of JT Miller, Elias Pettersson, and Brock Besser, I think it's one of the best in hockey. You know, I mean, Pettersson's incredible. JT Miller's a vet. He's been around forever. He's played on a bunch of really good teams, and he knows what he's doing. And then Brock Besser has also been lights out to start this year, and he was actually great last year, too, in the playoffs. So I think the Canucks are really due for a win. You know, they – they have already lost the first three, you know, matchups of the year that they've played against Calgary. Um, they're due in that sense. They're also due in the sense that they've lost six in a row. I mean, they won four in a row and everybody was like, oh, like maybe they're back because, you know, that Vancouver was expected to be good. And then they lost their last six. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's a team as due to win a hockey game as Vancouver. And I think while Thatcher Demko and Braden Holby, neither goalie has really played that well they're kind of going to be leaning on one of those guys who I would assume Demko would start this game to turn it around here. You know, they've had the day off. I mean, they, you, you got to beat the flames after losing last one, especially. So give me the Canucks plus plus one ten against the flames Saturday night, lock it in. I hope I'm right. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Canucks have been cold lately. So uh, we'll see how that one goes there underdogs uh, for my last wager this week. Uh, I'm going with some golf bets. Now, this tournament is actually already in progress, but these guys are knocking on the door, okay? So I'm going to take, you know, two underdogs uh, for top 10 finishes in this AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. 
Uh, of course, beautiful, beautiful Northern California. Francesco Molinari and Kevin Streelman. Okay, so these right. guys now, they're not the um, – let, let's just say they're not going to win the FedEx Cup this season in the PGA. And I've taken these two because it is a softer field this weekend at Pebble Beach. And I think this is an opportunity for Molinari and Truman, guys who have had success in the past on tour. You know, they're very seasoned, very experienced. I like both of them to really, you know, kind of crack the top 10 in this uh, with this big opportunity. You know, two veterans facing a weak field in this tournament, you know, a competition, the Pebble Beach Room that usually – yields to randoms kind of guys coming out of the blue finishing at or near the top you know among recent winners you know nick taylor ted potter god knows who you know those guys are and how much success they've had on the tour but that's all to kind of say this tour really pretends to you know kind of random golfers kind of rising to the top a little bit streelman plays pretty well at pebble he finished second last year uh in this competition and molinari you know he's one of the best iron players and bad boy their players on tour uh, he's also played Pebble a lot himself. And these two right now, you know, they're going to probably make the cut. Uh, so I'm, I'm holding out hope, keeping my fingers crossed. Uh, so give me Molinari plus 320 and Streelman plus 350 to make the top 10 at this week's PGA tournament. All right. I like that. I'll, I'll actually stick with you with my final pick uh, in the golf realm. It's a golf future, though. I'm not throwing on the Pro-Am this weekend just because I'm probably not going to watch that much of it. So why bet? Um, but I found a pretty delicious looking, uh, little odds set here with Brooks Kepka plus 400 to win a major in 2021. Like that seems like the easiest money you could possibly make. You know, I mean, I would say if I had to choose which major I think he's going to win, it's probably going to be the masters just cause it's the one American one. He hasn't won yet. And, you know, there's been, there's that quick turnaround that we have between the November masters of last year and then this year's tournament, which is obviously going to be in April, but in his last two appearances there, he's tied for second and tied for seventh. You know, he's no stranger, obviously to, to major championship success. I mean, since the start of 2016 in 16 majors that he's played in, he's finished top 10 in 10 of them, including four wins and at least one top 10 finish in each of the four majors. Like, Brooks Kepka is one of the premier golfers on the, on the planet. Even if he doesn't really do that well outside of majors, it doesn't matter. Majors are his bread and butter. He steps up to the, to the task every single time. And I think that Brooks plus 400 to win one in 2021 is like the easiest money bet I've been, I've placed since, you know, the bucks to win the Super Bowl plus 850 a few weeks back. Oh, Fuck you. <laughs> um, so there you I, go. Uh, I think Brooks Brooks is uh, Brooks is destined to redeem himself in a major this season, especially you know coming coming off that injury. All right, let's move on. Next segment, the classic pure cap, no cap, giving you guys a take, and uh, we'll tell you guys if it's BS or uh, holding some truth. And Ethan, the pure cap, no cap, I want to highlight this week uh, is in the NFL realm. You know, kind of putting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in a context. The 2020 Tampa Bay Super Bowl champion defense is in the same category as the 21st century elite defenses won Super Bowls between the 2000 Ravens, 2008 Steelers, 2013 Seahawks, 2015 Broncos. Is that pure cap or is that no cap? No, I would say it's definitely not pure cap. I wouldn't say it's like no cap just because I think the difference with those defenses is that they were consistently the top defense, like pretty much undisputed 
throughout the year, you know, like, I mean, Seattle, for example, it's like the, the fact that your defense has a nickname, like you're the Legion of Boom, like yeah. <laughs> you're pretty good. The Steelers were like the Steel Curtain 2.0, all that stuff. So I I don't think that Tampa Bay's defense is in the same category in terms of consistent, like regular season and postseason success. Not to say they were bad this regular season. They were still very, very good in, in a top five defense, but in terms of, you know, just turning it on in the playoffs and really being, I think, not the deciding factor, but an enormous, you know, push towards success for them in the Super Bowl specifically. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, if Tampa Bay's defense didn't play the way they played, yeah, could the Bucks still have easily won? I think for sure. You know, it's Tom Brady. He's put up 31 points for you. I mean, that offense is really good too, but it would have been a completely different game had they not been able to get yeah. the pressure on. I mean, they, it was a game-changing style of, of you know, play calling by Todd Bowles, and I think that in, in that sense, yeah, you can throw them in with some of these other defenses. You know, you think of 2015 Denver. The defense won them that game. 2013 Seattle, defense won them that game. Seriously. The Steelers, a little bit less so, just because, you know, it was the late heroics by Roethlisberger too. Yeah. But – but still, you know, the defense played a large role in that game, and then the Ravens, the same deal. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that that at least in terms of playoff defenses, I would say that, that you could easily put them in a top-five playoff defense in the 21st century, 100%. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with you here, actually. I'm going to say this is no cap that I think this really, you know, they deserve to be mentioned in this, in this top-five kind of echelon of yeah. Super Bowl-winning defenses in the 21st century because – uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned LOB here, and of course, I think I think LOB exists in its own kind of category in NFL history, just because that defense was just simply unbeatable. Whereas you know the Bucks defense right. is just sensational and got super hot in the playoffs. And I really wanted to use this time to put side by side uh, Super Bowl Forty Eight, which was when the Seahawks just demolished the Broncos, and Super Bowl Fifty Five, which is what we just watched this weekend uh, right. with the Buccaneers demolishing the Chiefs. Because if you compare mm-hmm. these two games side by side. Uh, you know, Seahawks and the Buccaneers, they were both not favored in this game. Um, the books were liking, you know, the MVP caliber quarter, you know, goat caliber quarterback on the other side, Peyton Manning with the Broncos, Mahomes with the Chiefs. And mm-hmm. then it was completely flipped on its head, you know, the result. And I think uh, something kind of interesting to mention, you know, obviously, you know, like I said, I'm not ready to put uh, the 2020 Bucks above the 2013 Seahawks, but I think they're they're just right there neck and neck at the top. And I really think that we need to be uh, you know, giving props as Buccaneers defense because even in this Super Bowl between the Seahawks and the Broncos, the Seahawks yielded a touchdown to Peyton Manning and the Broncos, and then a subsequent two point conversion. Obviously, you know that's that's you right. know nitpicking in a game that the Seahawks dominated. But the Buccaneers, they didn't even surrender a touchdown to Patrick mm-hmm. Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. So just thought that was kind of an interesting tidbit to mention. Uh, I think you know when it's all said and done, um, you know by the end of these Bucks, these guys from the Bucks, their careers. So many of them are going to be in Canton. You know, I think JPP, the Dominican Sioux, they've already solidified their Canton cases. Without a question, they're going to get the gold jacket. But, you know, we're still uh, pretty early, or not, I guess, early, but we're still at a point where these guys are in their primes. You know, these Tampa Bay linebackers, Levante David, Devin White, uh, yeah. Shaq Barrett. And yep. maybe when it's all said and done, they're joining uh, JPP and Sioux uh, with the gold jackets in, in the Hall of Fame. So, uh, just yeah. kind of want to take this time to, you know, tip our cap to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense because Brady would not be able to have, a, you know, conquered and captured this seventh Super Bowl just without, you know, this extremely dominant Todd Bowles defense there at Tampa Bay. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, before we move on to the final segment also, 
this is purely speculative, of course, but most of those guys that they had, not all of them, obviously, but most of the defensive guys that they had, uh, Tampa Bay, I mean, like they had them last year too. Like, like what does yeah. it also say about just Brady's, like the way that he sort of changes the entire like mentality and feel of a locker room to the point where like everybody's just ready to crack some, some skulls, you know, of course, like I, nobody will ever know what the true impact that he has on a team or on a franchise is, but it's, it, that is, I think something interesting to sort of think about is like, how did he take this defense in terms of, you know, feel and, and the aura of the team itself, how did he take them from a pretty good defense in years past to now being able to dominate the best QB in the league? You know, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about just how like Brady walks into that room and the entire franchise has changed forever, but enough of the pure cap, no cap. Let's keep it rolling into the final segment, our namesake segment. What kind of podcast would we be if we didn't step into the time machine for a little bit, We've got a couple kind of interesting ones. It's not, you know, like an on this day in sports history type thing. It's actually going to be a little bit more looking back into some Super Bowl history and stuff pertaining to the Super Bowl. So November 19th, 2016 uh, was the last time that Patrick Mahomes lost to any team in a game that he started by double digits. Um, You know, obviously it happened in the Super Bowl, but prior to that it had not happened in his entire career as a starter with Kansas City. Uh, You know, this was during his college days at Texas Tech. He actually got smoked 66 to 10 uh, versus Iowa State, but he still had a touchdown in that game and didn't have one in this Super Bowl. So, you know, I, I don't know how much this really means. Of course, you can catch a guy on a bad day. There are a ton of external factors that yeah, also are contributing to. But just interesting to see how how much success Mahomes has really experienced since he entered the league. And it's yeah, taken man. for a defense that we're talking about as generational quarterback that we're calling the greatest of all time. It's taken a team with all of these different you know, components Mm -hmm. to dethrone this guy. I mean, he's still a great quarterback. Like that's what I think a lot of people are missing is like, he's still fucking insane. He's never lost by double digits in the NFL, except in the Super Bowl to Tom Brady. Like that's a little excusable. I would say. I it's just insane. If you put it into context, it's taken this long for something like for us to see Pat Mahomes in this kind of game with, you know, just surrendering to this kind of dominance at the hands of Tampa Bay. I mean, think about it, bro. Like, this is third-year starting quarterback for the Chiefs, right? And this is the first time that they've truly gotten exposed. Like, I'm talking, like, a a true poor showing. And the fact that it's taken this long, because, you know, I want to just kind of emphasize what you were saying, that, like, great quarterbacks have bad games, but – for this particular great quarterback to have his first like bad, bad game come this late in his second Super Bowl appearance. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that just, you know, continues to emphasize the greatness of Pat Mahomes and what he's contributed to this Kansas city chiefs franchise. I mean, the man is only like 25 or whatever. Right. So like, yep. we, you know, there's just so much more to come in Mahomes' career. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, seeing how he redeems himself in the next couple of years, because you know, he is, he's taken this one personally in the words of Michael Jordan, Oh, yeah. uh, but let's uh, let's wrap this up with our last time machine rewind, Ethan, you know, talking about uh, rewinding to the last time Mahomes lost this bad. But, you know, got to also rewind to the last time the Bucks won this big, the last time the Tampa Bay Buccaneers captured the <laughs> Lombardi trophy and won the Super Bowl. Uh, this was January 26, 2003. So another one that's not really necessarily on this date. 
but uh, just a big historical moment for this Tampa Bay Buccaneers franchise. If you kind of rewind to that game, it just literally, bro, feels like another world away from where we are right now. George Bush was president. We were fighting the war in Iraq. Uh, you know, Pat Mahomes was bare, you know, he was a kid or whatever. He was like seven years old or something. In the club by 50 Cent, uh, Nishing by R. Kelly. Those are the top two songs. I love that you wrote that down here. Uh, (laughs) A whole different era of football. You know, Rich Gannon won the MVP that year for the Oakland Raiders. Led them to the AFC Championship. I think that's got to be like – they've only made the playoffs once since then, right? 2016, that Derek Carr year. Um, So weird direction uh, Oakland went in that game. And then, of course, John Gruden, uh, you know, leading Tampa Bay – to that championship off that, you know, elite defense with uh, John Lynch, Derek Brooks, Warren Sapp. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just some nostalgia here. Kind of weird to consider that Gruden won that Super Bowl against a team, a franchise that he ended up returning to coach. But at that time, yeah. he had coached, you know, before he had gotten to Tampa Bay. So just kind of interesting to consider how far this Bucks franchise has come, you know, in a span of whatever, seven or 18 years, where it didn't even make the playoffs that much, you know? Yep. Yeah. I mean, they're the losingest uh, franchise in NFL history. And, you know, you get Brady for one year and you win the Super Bowl. It's like, all right. Like, again, you know, I know we've been stroking him off all episode, but it just, again, goes to show you like he shows up and everything changes. You know, you're, he's like LeBron in that regard. It's like whatever team LeBron's on the NBA, they're immediate title contenders. Whatever team Brady is going to be the starting QB for, you're immediately Super Bowl contenders, if not the favorites. And he just proved all those doubters wrong. You know, he was able to get it done. And it's been a long time coming for the for the Bucks fans and you know for their players, no doubt that front office too. But but uh, you know, I'm sure it's got to be as sweet a Super Bowl victory as it, any of them could have possibly been, just to you know go through sort of this terrible stretch after the 2002-2003 season, where they've just been the laughing stock of the league, to now being back on top and being able to dethrone Mahomes while you're at it. I, it must yeah. be pretty special. Insane, insane. I'm not sure we'll realize the full weight of this until you know years in the future, till uh, you know the next coming of Jameis Winston, uh, right. You know, tanks that Buccaneers franchise. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode, HTTM, episode 20 here in the books. Uh, we're excited to see some more hockey and basketball as that heats up. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, looking forward to having some potential big futures hit. Uh, I know Ethan and I are getting hyped in that regard for March Madness, seeing some Cinderella's uh, rise to the forefront. So we'll have more college basketball coverage for you guys uh, as yes, the next sir. couple of weeks go on. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Peace out. Sir.